Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something. I, uh, I was out in Burbank the other night. I was into this bar called the Story Tavern. And if you haven't been there, it's pretty cool because they have a game room. And I've seen a buddy of mine I haven't seen for a while. He said, you want to get a beer? I said, yeah. And then another friend called and he came with his girlfriend. And we went to the game room and we played shuffleboard. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out to a bar. I mean, I know people associate shuffleboard with, you know, old people's homes and out in the sun. But I'm going to tell you, I have never had that much fun in a long time. I mean, foosball, I stink at. Darts, to me... If you're not that good, it gets monotonous if you're playing cricket after like three numbers. But go to Story Tavern. I think it's the only place in Burbank. I think Champs may also have it. But go and play shuffleboard, and it's so fun. And just look up the rules, and you'll have a blast. Anyway, that's my that's my suggestion of the week. We have a we have a great show today. We have a man who's a great actor, uh, an accomplished writer, a musician. <laughs> I mean, everything. It's Earl Brown. How you doing, Earl? <laughs> Thanks. So, I'm, I'm doing great. So so you said uh. Because when I looked, when I did my research, it was W. Earl Brown. Yeah. But now, who else has that name? I I don't know the guy. Um, when I went to join the union, I was on a must join. This was in 1991 in Chicago, and um, you can't have the same name as someone else. So I have to work. I have to be called like at noon. So I'm in the office, and I said, "I'm Earl Brown." Tick 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 tick. I'm sorry, you can't have that name. I uh okay. I'm I'm William Brown, which is my name. William Earl Brown. Yep. You can't be William Earl Brown. You can't be William Brown. So I remembered a name from an Elvis Presley record, If I Can Dream, written by W. Earl Brown. So I said, I'll be I'll be W. Earl Brown. So hence I became. And then all those years later, um, I started playing with these guys, Sacred Cowboys, and we actually recorded some stuff. We had some things placed. So I had to join the Songwriters um, Association, <laughs> ASCAP. Well, guess who was a member at ASCAP? W. Earl Brown. So hence I became as a songwriter, William Earl Brown. That's so funny because I mean, it sounds W. Earl Brown sounds like a, a writer's name. You know, that <laughs> sounds like such a high writer's name. Now, now you're from it's the this, the town you're from in Indiana. Is it a smaller, Kentucky? Kentucky. I'm sorry, Kentucky. I'm sorry. I said Kentucky. I'm sorry. You went, but college you went. Uh, I went to Murray State. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, but um, it was it a small town. It's called something Pond, where you grew Oh, up. Golden Pond. That's where I was born. Okay. Now, was it a small town? Oh, it was tiny. It was practically non-existent. Um, it, I, I lived there until I was four. Um, my grandfather used to run the pool hall in the place, and then he started a grocery store out by the lake. Golden Pond was this very small settlement in what became Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area. The government had taken the land when I was a kid and turning it into a national recreation area, so we had to move. Um, so my memories of Golden Pond, the town itself, are practically non-existent, mostly from photographs. Yeah, when where'd you grow up at then? Uh, across the lake in Callaway County, outside of Murray, Kentucky, 12 miles from Murray. Okay, now as a kid, did you always know you wanted to act? Yeah, well, I, I had a hyperactive imagination, and I, the, the first theater I ever attended was on my granddaddy's front porch. Because I mean, they were my my mom's family were farmers and carpenters. And it, it was just the tradition on, you know, you worked six days a week and on Sundays you took time off and they sat on the front porch and sang songs and told stories. And that was my first experience, uh, you know, just performing for the family. And uh, it, it didn't seem like anything you could actually do as a career. Uh, the first time I had the, the cognizant thought of I want to do that was my freshman year of high school seeing Animal House. And I'd sit like two or three times, second or third viewing. Wasn't that a great? Because we're the same oh, age. And yeah. I remember I remember going to this little movie theater and we snuck in. And uh -huh. it was like in this it's shopping center. And it's still the same thing. We watched it. And it's like, and my older brother talked about it. But you're oh, watching yeah. it going, yeah, I mean, you loved Belushi. You uh -huh. loved you loved uh, Tim Matheson. You're like, this is like the the second coming. I mean, it was oh, so, yeah. so amazing. Well, I worked the scene where I cognizantly had the thought was where Belushi just took the mustard and poured it on himself. <laughs> I remember, I'm laughing so hard. I'd already seen the joke. And I remember thinking, man, I'd love to do that. So uh, uh, that was uh, that was one of the seeds that eventually uh, took root. No, no, I, no. I, I just toured. I went to my daughter is considering going to University of Oregon. And I asked her why. She goes, because I had a dream that I was going to college in Oregon. So we toured the place, which is where they shot Animal House. So I spent the whole time, not as college dad, right. but as Animal House geek, going to all the places where they filmed the movie. Did you and find the favor house? The which? The, 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 I mean, the frat house, the Delta house. Did you find that? Uh, their place is gone. It was it was torn down. 
uh, the place that was the animal house. The sorority house is still there, and the the other fraternity house is there. Um, but I, I worked with, you mentioned Matheson, I worked with he and Bruce McGill. I remember vividly, it was September the 10th, 2001, is when I flew to Vancouver to work with them. Um, and then 9-11 happened, and, and we were just, we had to work that day. But it was several days later, we had like a early morning call. We were picked up at like four or something at the hotel at the Sutton place in Vancouver. I'm in the van with Matheson and Bruce McGill with D-Day and Otter. Right, right. And I got this big grin on my face. And Tim turns to me and he goes, what in the hell are you so happy about? <laughs> I mean, you, you know how early it is. You know what's going on in the world. Right. Why do you have that smile? I said, because uh, when I was a kid, Animal House was my favorite movie and it made me want to be in movies. And I'm in a van with D-Day and Otter going to shoot something. And I think that's pretty cool that is that is awesome so, so okay so so you go to murray state which people if you don't know was uh the also your a fellow alumni older alumni is uh, jim varney mm-hmm. was an alumnus jim i think he i don't did he graduate murray state i looked at he, murray street famous alumni and you were on it there's well, like 44 well, his people. cousin terry varney was a classmate of mine okay and, and i knew terry um i knew they were from the lexington area i think but so you went there, and then you decide... Pat Sajak. Pat Sajak went a, there. Uh, Pat Sajak went there. Well, you, Murray State always has a great basketball Basketball, team. They yeah. always make the... It's a, what, what are they called? The Racers? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So now so now you go there, and are you a theater major, I'm guessing? Well, no. When I started, I, had, I was the first in my family to even go to college. I really had no clue as to what I was going to do. Um, and it still seemed like a pipe dream to, to, to do what I've done with my life. Um. I, I thought, well, maybe I will. I can work at the because I always I, I was drawn toward cameras, but I was thinking I'm going to be behind one. Um, we had a, at that time, Murray State was one of the few colleges in the nation that had an operational TV station. Okay. We went on the air five nights a week. We had live news and we had shows. So I started doing what what would now be on YouTube. I would be that kid with his own YouTube channel. Um, but I didn't really get involved in that in my first year. I was just kind of floundering not knowing what I was going to do. Maybe I can work at the NBC affiliate and be like a producer for the news or something. Um, and then I took an acting class on a whim. I, mean, I was in a theatrical experience gen ed class, and it was taught by the dean of the college, who was kind of slumming, filling in that class. He was a theater nut, and he was talking about improvisational theater. And, and we were in a classroom of like 150 kids, but he would pick out like four or five just as an example. I remember desperately wanting to be one of those people called, and I wasn't. And that's when I thought, you know, I should, I, I should. I. So I took an acting class. I had in high school, we had a very active speech and debate team, and we were quite successful. We were state champions three of the, my four years, but we didn't have theater per se, um, not formal theater, but it was performing, writing my own stuff, um, and performing it. Um, so I, I took this acting class and. The first day, I was with all these people that done regional theater, and and very, I became friends with a lot of them, but I jokingly teased they were the black turtleneck and clove cigarette crowd who wanted I, to sit around and talk about theory. Yeah, well, I, are you an internal or an external actor? I remember those oh, people. God. Oh God. Well, I I thought my first when we're introduced gets to me, and I said, well, uh, my name's Earl, and um. Well, I've never really done a play. Well, no, no. In the eighth grade, we did a class play called It's Cold in Them There Hills. And, and they're snickering. I'm like, I, and I, I play it. Well, I was the, I was the lead, but um, I've never done a play. So we had our first assignment, which was a Shakespearean soliloquy. And I, it was like a fish dropping into water for the first time. <laughs> I remember thinking I did Shakespeare's whole York uh, thing. Which I, I picked it because I remembered it from a Gilligan's Island episode. <laughs> That's perfect. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I had not read Hamlet, but I'm like, well, I remember that from Gilligan's Island, so I'll read this one. And uh, so I, 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 anyway, it was like, oh, this is it. So I started doing plays, and we did uh, that championship season in October of 1983. And I was playing the coach. It was a 20-year-old kid playing a 70-year-old man. It was it was transcendent. It was the first time. Little did I naively know at that point in my life it would be one of the few times where it really transcended. I lost sense of self, and I remember when the the final curtain fell because we got spontaneous standing ovations. 
And I remember thinking, this is the most amazing feeling I have ever had. This is better than any church, any sex, any drug. This I hadn't been laid a whole lot at that point in my life. But I remember thinking, this is the greatest. So I've spent the rest of my life chasing that feeling. So you graduate there, and I know, and then you went to Chicago to DePaul. Mm-hmm. And now, now was that your next move, or did you think about going to New York or LA, or why did you decide that? There, uh, because I was a Belushi freak. There's okay. a there's an interesting bumper story in that. I had uh, the Second City Touring Company had come through the college, and I knew because all those guys I admired were from SNL and SCTV, Second City Television. It's all Second City, so. The touring company came through, and Don DiPolo was his name. He was the director of the touring company. This was in 1980, spring of 85. I had seen them one year prior, uh, but it just so happened this was a new company that was out, and their director was on the road with them. So I met after the show. I went up to Don, and I said, oh, and how does somebody do this? Well, there's a long waiting list, and we have classes. And at that point, Donnie was the only teacher. There were three classes, and Donnie taught all three of them. They didn't yet have their school, their whole formal structure. Anyway, Don, we as we chatted longer, he took a shine to me. He goes, man, I, 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 got, a, I got a good feeling about you. I, I tell you what, why don't you give me his home number? He goes, why don't you call me in, around May, and I'll try to make room for you this summer. So every week for six weeks, I drove 840 miles wow. round trip, 420 up on Friday night, find some place to flop and sleep. Uh, hopefully afford a hotel room, spend Saturday in classes. I, he would keep me around. I, I did level one. He kept me there for two and three. And then I would stay and watch their their show at night because as a student, I could get in for free. So I would stay and watch them and watch them do their improvs. And in, in the company then, oh, there's several. Rich Kind was in the company, Richard Kind. Um, yeah, this is before uh, Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey and um, uh, Steve Carell were in the company oh they were a little bit later it was after i'd moved to chicago anyway like this is it this is what i want to do i this is it so i was going to get in s second city i was going to be there for like four or five years and i was going to go to saturday night live and then i was going to get in movies just like my hero so um the summer ended i had another year of college left i didn't know how the hell i'm gonna okay i gotta get to chicago well well, I'll go, I'll go, but me, let me audition for some graduate schools. So th- thinking, I didn't know, I didn't know how in the hell I was going to break into real show business. Um, but I auditioned for a few graduate programs, one of which was in Chicago, the Goodman School of Drama, the theater school DePaul. Um, it was still the Goodman at that point. They just changed the name. Anyway, I got in and it was in Chicago. So I moved, started school. I got a call from Don. This was November of 86. Um, he said, do you, do you want to join our touring company? Yes. He goes, you'll have to drop out of your school. I don't care. It's, I, you can't finish your MFA. Not, I don't care. It's what I, you'll have to have a second job. I don't care. It's what I want to do. Because in my head, I'm going to be in touring company for like a month. Right, right. <laughs> so Don says, well, um, we are hiring a new big guy because um, they have physical types. Every company has physical types. And he said to them, uh, I, uh, I can't be there this weekend. Uh, my wife and I have plans, but you do need to go through the formality of the audition. I'll talk to Joyce, who is the producer, Joyce Sloan. He said, I'll talk to Joyce and I'll take care of it, but just be there Saturday morning and I'll talk to her afterwards. The last thing he said to me in that conversation was, you know, I'm not directing this show. Del Close is coming back from the improv Olympic. He's got this kid over at the Olympic. He's just crazy about, but Look, I'll talk to Joyce. I'll take care of it. Be there Saturday. It was me and Farley. Okay. Me and Chris. And, you know, Chris is idolizing John to the degree that he had to live and die the same way. Um, you know, and it, so it was my first big lesson. And in retrospect, um, it was a great lesson to learn. It was the first big kick in the nuts. You know, of, I'm like, I've been here no time. This is all happening just like I planned. That's when the fly goes up. You're like, yeah. wait a second, this shit, this is, it isn't this easy. Yeah, and and Chris was at that point exactly what he was on Saturday Night Live. This whirlwind of energy and phenomenally talented and charismatic. He was Dell's guy, which Dell Close had been Don's teacher or had been Belushi's teacher. I was Don's guy. You know, had the revolves been reversed, had it been Don's show because he knew my work, 
So, you know, that was my, I went back with tail between my legs back and finished the MFA program. And thankfully I did because it made me a much better actor than I would have been had I directly gone into that route. And then the irony is 12 years later, um, sec, um, when we were doing the something about Mary, Fox wanted a name. They wanted a star in that role. The Fairleys were adamant that, no, the audience must believe this guy has a mental handicap. And I don't care how good somebody is. If it's if it's a star, they're going to know it's not. Somebody playing it. Chris was on their list. Um, he actually passed while we were doing the movie. Because I remember sitting there. I had the day off, and I'm sitting in my hotel, and it was like breaking news. Comedian, movie star, Chris Farley. So... It's crazy. Well, I know you were in Chicago when you graduated. Back then, there was a lot of work in Chicago. I mm-hmm. mean, you could start working. I know you were in different movies and TV. Oh, yeah. I think you were in Backdraft and a few other things. You had yeah. small parts. And, and that was one thing. Now, I heard, you know, people have moved. But back then, you could make a living mm-hmm. being an actor. So you're doing, you're getting work. You know, you have your MFA. When do you decide to move to L.A.? And was there a certain point? Because everyone says there's a point that they go. Because some people always say they are in Chicago. They're getting flown out for pilot season. Yeah. But they're going back. Was were you getting flown? To, uh, I was. The, well, I came. There's a glass ceiling. Uh, it, it doesn't matter where you're at regionally, you know. And and if you're out of Atlanta, if you're out of New Orleans, because there's a lot of production going on there now, and people can work. Um, however, the you're only going to be up for certain certain roles. And I mine in Chicago was an action movie called Excessive Force. It was a New Line film. Um, so it had a bit of a budget, but it was everything its title implies it being. I was the bad guy. They had a known star name that they wanted, and I knew this. They couldn't afford him. It would not fit in their budget. So they hired me locally at scale, at just a tad over scale. And I'm, it's a lead role. And right. I remember as I'm doing it thinking, this is as good as it gets if I stay here. My goal was always TV film stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that actors can do to supplement income voiceovers and 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 i and i had friends it's still it's it's there's a lot of people i know live in chicago that make very good living um but it was doing a lot of stuff i didn't want to do and i was afraid that if if i started making really good money because i knew people this happened to if i started making really good money doing the kind of work i didn't want to do it would be really difficult for me to let go of that money so in uh two uh 1993 I was one of those guys that was sent out here for pilot season. Didn't fly because I couldn't afford it. I drove. Um, and I'd been out here for two weeks, and I got a TV pilot in New Orleans. So they fly me to New Orleans. I did it. I came back out here. I got a TV movie, a supporting role in the TV. And I called my wife, and we have to move out here. This it's is low-hanging fruit. Isn't it funny that you drive out here, and you, you, you get this thing, and, and then you get a pilot. And it's in New Orleans. You're like, I'm finally out here. And then you're oh, yeah. like, well, you're going to have to go. So, yeah. so, you, so your wife moves out here then. Yeah. She, um, <clears throat> she stayed with the company she was with at the time for a year, which necessitated her traveling all the time. And uh, we actually, my first house was just blocks from where we're sitting right now. My, ho- my home now is not too far away, but my, the rental house I had for two years is just down the street here. Burbank's great. I, lived, I, lived, I live on the other side, but I've lived here forever. Yeah. It's, just, it's nice. I mean, when we changed our studios, I was just like, wait, because I never, you know, if you live above Glen Oaks, you never really get down to this part. There's nothing like, and I know because you're, you're everything's there. You know, my yeah. Ralph's is there, my, tra- my Trader Joe's, my Sprouts. But I drive here and I'm like, man. I heard that pizza place is really good. Like I've never been to Dino's. Everyone says oh, it's good oh, pizza. Oh, it's awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm las- from back east. Lasagna I, pizza. Okay, it's a unique thing they do there. I've never been there. I drive by it you now every Tuesday. I'm like, I gotta get their pizza. So you move out here, and yeah. she moves out here, and now you're you're working, and now you're getting, you're also getting parts on TV shows, right? Well, I went when we moved. When we formally moved, I had seven months of nothing, nothing. So practically you- no no audition. So I go for, and the TV pilot did not get picked up. So I go from like, this is easy to nothing. Well, I was the new guy. When you're coming out, when you're being brought out, you know, you're the new guy in town. So they would give you a chance. Um, Well, when you live here, you're not the new guy. You're not the unique new thing. So it was starting all over. Um, So, yeah, I didn't exactly hit the ground running and maintain. I mean, I made money, but not not what I was hoping for. So eventually, you came out, what, 93 you came out? Yeah. And so now in 96, you get cast in Scream. Yep. Now, when you got cast in Scream, because I don't think, I mean, 
and I grew up. I'm we're the same age. I remember when Halloween was big, and I remember that whole genre. It it blew up. So we Halloween, know. Animal House, Halloween, Star Wars. Our freshman year of high school. So yeah, I mean, our big thing was you take a date to Halloween and Halloween too. You know, there's a little mall. My but, wife and I's first date was Halloween three, which okay. was horrible, and I hated. <laughs> and I tell you how much I liked her, because I'd already seen that movie once, and it was awful. <laughs> and she wanted to go see Halloween three. And I'm like, this girl's really cute. Because I was, hell, I was out of high school then. She was still in high school. And so, yeah. So, yes. So, you get cast in Scream. Now, did you think it would be, a, I mean, it had a great cast. But mm-hmm. did, you, did you think it would be a big hit? I mean, because it really blew. I oh, mean, it yeah. blew up to, like, cult status. Yeah. We, uh, I'd heard about the buzz on the script. I'd done two other movies with Wes. Um, and he took a shine to me. This, you know, you, you meet these people, you cross paths with them. Wes was the first guy in Hollywood, like a Hollywood name guy, that took a shine to me um, and believed in me. So when Screen came about, I'd heard about it, so I got a hold of it and I read it. Now, I didn't get it. I didn't get the whole satire angle, which is what it is. You know, Kevin is our age, Kevin Williamson, and right. Kevin grew up on the same films that we did, and he was making fun of them. Well, Wes had announced when we had our table read because I'd done Vampire in Brooklyn with him, which was a miss. You know, he was attempting that. that Eddie was, Murphy. Yeah. And you thought it would have been a hit. I mean, it was, it was yeah. when Eddie was coming down. It wasn't when it wasn't hot, yeah. hot Eddie. It was when Eddie was curving down yeah, and a little Eddie, bit. Yes. And, uh, and, and I also saw how a, a, a man who is phenomenally talented can lose the spark because he did. He didn't care. He didn't seem to care uh, at all. And it showed uh, in the film. But uh, the, the, the film um, tonally was kind of all over the map. But Wes said at our table read for Scream, he said, we're doing a satire. This is meant to be funny. However, if it's not scary, it will not work. Okay. So never think that we're, we're playing this up as, as comedy. Um, so he tonally struck the, the perfect fulcrum. And... Um, I still didn't get – as we were shooting it, I had a great time, and we had a blast. It just fun. Um, and when I saw it all put together the first time, that's when it really sunk in of, that it was a special, special movie. Well, it was great because, I mean, I wasn't really into the horror genre mm-hmm. then, but then I watched it. Yeah, it was one of those things where you knew it was – Oh, it there, rebirthed that it whole – yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, you know, you do that, and so that's a hit movie. Mm-hmm. So now you get you have a little heat. I mean, they're saying – Well, yeah, I had billing on that film – the way Hollywood works, I always naively thought when I started in this that you do special work, it does well, and special things happen for you. That's not true. Um, you get what's negotiated, um, and a, a lot of out of the naive fantasy I had of what this life would be like turned out to be false. Um, but with Scream, nothing. Real. Wes gave me billing on that. That's the only time ever. Now, billing... I, it's great seeing your name in the front of the movie, but at the time, your career is judged by your billing. Like, agents battle over billing where your name is, if your name's in the front of the movie or if it's just in the crawl. And so that was the first time anything had ever been given to me. That Like, I'm watching the movie, and there's my name and face and the cre- those opening credits, which are actually at the end of the movie because the movie starts with no credits whatsoever. Um, so... Nothing really happened. It took a while. Um, and then Mary was the next one. Like, Mary broke out gargantuan. I was going to ask you, it was funny, because well, there's something about Mary came out. That was, I mean, the fire release had done Kingpin, but they they released Kingpin after. I believe Kingpin was done first. Yes. King, uh, they, Dumb and Dumber was their first movie, then Kingpin, and then Mary. Now, when you read for, I mean, because that was, I mean, that was a giant hit. I mean, yeah. I, and I'll be honest. I mean, I, I have a background. Like, I did stand-up comedy for a long time, and I'll watch movies. And I always say about something about Mary. It's one of those movies where you don't laugh every minute, but when you laugh, oh, yeah. you laugh harder. Yeah. I mean, you sit there, and you're like, it's one of those things where you're like, thank God we're not laughing every minute, else you wouldn't be able to hear it. I saw it at the theater. Yeah. And it's, one, it's just one of those things where the scenes are so, I mean, when you sit there and say funny, they're beyond funny. They're yeah. so, so funny. Like, I mean, I'll watch a Woody Allen movie, and I'll laugh a lot. For this, though, it's mm-hmm. one of the hardest you laughs. So now, and your role. Now, what was the breakdown for your role as Warren? Did- now, that was one where the fates led me to it. I was doing a miniseries for CBS called Bella Mafia, and Jennifer Tilly and I were uh, husband and wife. And it was really, it, it was overwritten melodrama, and we kind of made fun of it. As we were playing it, there was this this subtext 
kind of a wink subtext. The director loved it because it gave some levity. So he was encouraging us to keep that tone going. A camera assistant, Gary Yoshiba, who had worked on Scream, he worked on all three West movies that I'd worked on. Gary was working second camera on that. And he pulls me aside at one point. And he goes, oh my God, you're funny. You're so funny. I've never seen you do comedy. Oh my God. I'm going to be doing this new movie with for the Fairley Brothers. It's called There's Something About Mary. It's the funniest script I've ever read in my life. You ought to read it. Days later, I'm on the treadmill at the Bally's in Studio City next to Lynn Shea. Well, I recognized her, and I said, oh, we have a mutual friend, Wes Craven. Oh, yeah, we're both in New Nightmare, chat, chat. And, and she said, I'm doing this new movie for the Fairleys. Did you ever see Kingpin and Dumb and Dumb? I said, yeah. She goes, well, th their new film is the funniest script I've ever read in my life. It's called Something About, There's Something About Mary. So that's two people in the course of days right. that have brought this up. So I go to my manager, and I said, I... And she did not like big, loud, gross movies. She hated Dumb and Dumber Kingpin. She goes, you, so she gets me the script. And I read it, and it was just like the, that, that role, that. And there's very few lines. Like, you look at the page, and Warren is practically non-existent. And everyone remembers the Franks and Beans line. Yeah. But, but so, so when you went in there, was it, I mean, how do you... Do that role because well, you have to be sensitive because it is. Well, I knew instinctively <clears throat> the way I got in, I, I owe to Rob Moran. I was part of an improv group that Amy Peets hosted at her house. Amy and I go back to Chicago, went to school together. And it was all working actors. We weren't putting a show together. We would just get together to play on Sunday afternoons just to invigorate ourselves, you know, because some were stuck on some TV shows that had them in a rut. Um, so I knew Rob through that group and I kept thinking, I'm at Chicago. How do I know him? Then I realized he was Stanley, the evil bowler and kingpin. And I said, Hey, and he goes, yeah, I'm in dumb and dumber too. I'm the bartender. When Jim gets stood up on his date. I'm like, oh my God. You, he said, I'll grew up with the Fairleys. I know him well. I've known him since I was a teenager. I said, because man, I'm trying to get in on something about Mary and I can't get, he goes, Warren, are, are you interested in playing Warren? Because they can't find anybody. Wow. I said, yeah, uh, yes, I am. So that's how I got in. Now, my take was what had happened is they were seeing comics. They were seeing stand-ups. And, and, you know, you you stand-up. You can take any material and put a twist on it and put a little wink behind the eye, and, and you can make it funny. I just knew instinctively the only way that that character is going to play and the only way it's going to be funny is if it's honest. Because if if you are making fun, if you if you're doing Joe Dirt, you know, where you're you're commenting on the character you're playing and making fun of him. A, it's not going to be funny in the context of this film. And B, the audience is going to hate you. Right. So the only way to play this is to play it, you know, straight up. And I was the only person to play it that way out of the couple of hundred that they saw. So. So you got the part. Yeah. Now, it's a it's a huge, I mean, a huge. It's a huge hit. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. saying it's a hit is minimal. I mean, it was a giant. It was probably the biggest comedy mm -hmm. in the in, in the last few years, the years of that time. Now, would people when you went out, would people see you and think that say, "Hey, that's Warren"? Oh no. Okay, so they, so they never knew. So my my favorite story in that context, I was doing a horror movie called Lost Souls. We were shooting here in L.A. And Mary was still out in theaters at this point. In this big church downtown, and we we couldn't park right there. We had to park a ways. So I'm parked with the extras. We had like 200, 300 extras filling this church. We had spent the day watching me get shot in the face in front of you know this church full of people. So the day's over. I'm on the van, and there's this really cute girl. She just got out of college, and she'd moved out here to Hollywood, and she was gonna make it in the pictures, and she was an extra in the show. And I'm sitting in the van next to her. And there's her, her male counterpart next, and they're talking about something about Mary. Oh, my God, that's the funniest film I've ever seen. The brother. Oh, my God, the brother. Well, they're talking about Warren. So I think, well, it's obvious because I'm sitting right here next to her. And I said, oh, do you like that? Oh, I love that movie. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I said, and Warren, oh, my God, he was so funny and sweet. I said, well, you know, I'm Warren. And she looked at me like I had farted in church. <laughs> And she literally did not say another word. She turned her back entirely to me and carried on her conversation with the other guy. And I, my first was I was offended. Like, how, 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 
you just spent a day watching me get shot in the face. You sh- I, but, you- and then my second thought was, wait a minute. She believed Warren so much. She thinks I'm trying to mack on her by lying. Well, what's funny you say that about that is, and I had heard, I mean, after that, because I know in a few of them, a few of the Farley brothers, they had used some mentally challenged yeah. kids. Well, Warren, the real Warren's in that movie. Okay, okay, okay. He plays Freddy. Okay. The guy, the hamburgers. Mary, will you give me a kiss? Mary, will you marry me? She goes, what about De- Dolores, I think? What about, I, you know, Mary, both of you kiss me. That's Warren. That's the real guy. So what's it like when you're playing him? And, I mean, does he sit there? I mean, because he sits there and does he sit there and go, this guy's playing I, me? I did not know until we started the film that there was a real Warren. Okay. That it was based on their next door neighbor growing up. Uh, the Tajian family and the Fairleys were big families and they, and they knew Warren. Um, he was the oldest in the family, so they based the character on him. But I didn't know that until we started. And again, it was a, a kismet thing because, you know, as the actor in me, I have to understand the background and the history. It's stuff I have to know. Nobody else has to know. So this whole history that I made up, medical condition and everything that led Warren to be how Warren was, is actually what the real Warren went through. Wow. Um, so again, I, 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 the fates, kismet, whatever you want to label it, I still feel like led me to that, um, to playing that. So that movie's a hit. Mm-hmm. And now you're, you're, everyone sees your performance, but they don't recognize you from the outside. Mm-hmm. So now what does your management do when they sit there and say, I mean, how do they, how do they pitch you to other projects? Well, because it's like, I mean, I understand it was great acting that people didn't, but then when you're pitching it, it must have been a weird situation. Nothing happened. Nothing happened in my career because of Mary. Really? No, especially not initially because when, uh, when Ben did Tropic Thunder, and that whole speech that uh, Robert has, Robert Downey Jr., you know, in Tropic Thunder about his Happy Jack character. You never go full retard. You never go. <laughs> I wrote Ben an email. Well, that explains what happened to my career. <laughs> uh, so, so no, it was, um, you know, I'm extremely proud. And as, as time has gone on, it's been known. Um, but there's still people that don't know that that's me. So and I, and, and I, to be honest, there's a part of me that's very proud. Again, it's part of my naivete when I started this. I used to think, you know, yeah, I got an ego. It's nice having my picture in the paper. It's nice being recognized every now and again. But I'm I don't actively pursue it. You do special work, special things happen, right? Nothing happened. Um, and I, what I also learned is. Uh, Harry Shearer said this in an interview when he did the Godzilla, and I don't even know Harry. I just listen to him on the radio and read, watch his stuff. But when he did Godzilla, he said, fame is the loop, because they were questioning how could such a cutting edge guy like him do something, you know, for such a big paycheck as the first that Godzilla remake was. He said, fame is the lucre that allows you to do the work you want to do as an artist. Like, that's it. Because Mary, after Mary, Nothing. It didn't really elevate my career. It didn't add, you know, didn't add up to big paychecks because I barely got paid beyond scale doing that movie. But so you were working a lot, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and now then now I know you have a musical background. Now mm-hmm. then you got to play Meatloaf, yeah. which which I mean, for me, which is cool because I was a big Meatloaf fan. And it's funny is Robbie Benson was on my show and he's married to Carla DeVito, uh-huh. who's in the video. And Carla was in the studio. And I, I mean, believe me, we're our age. We're like Robbie Benson. But and it, but when I was talking, I was thinking, Dan, that's the girl in, in the, you know, who sang on the Meatloaf song. Yeah. Now, how did that audition come about? And were you were you a fan of Meatloaf? I'm a music freak. Okay. Like my I and I just across the board. I like all kind of music. Um, and it, just when I started playing, and I didn't start playing until I moved to Chicago, like really learning how to play. It's just when I sang, it came out country, because I am. Um, but I love the that first Meatloaf album. I still love it. That Todd Rundgren album, Bad Out of Hell, is an incredible record. It's so huge and grandiose and and it, but it works. He strikes that perfect fulcrum between humor and it, it works. Um, so I, I saw, I knew that they were casting it and I'm the one that told my, my manager, I said, I want to go in on this and I could sing. And we were told we were just supposed to lip sync while I learned the song. So I went in and sang the thing full voice and then I got it. Um, and that's kind of, that led to, there used to be a monthly club here called Club Makeup. It was a glam club at the El Rey Theater. would sell out 
every month. And they would do a show at midnight based on certain theme. Well, they were doing a Rocky Horror show. And all, and the musicians in the band, it's it, like rock stars, you know, Matt Sorum and Gilby Clark of Guns N' Roses and Dee Dee Ramone. I played with Dee Dee a few times. Um, guys of that ilk would be part of the band. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that was the first time that I was on stage with a really, real great rock and roll band. And that kind of planted the seed and the ball just kept rolling. And you started your own band. I did out of, uh, it just started with guitar pulls of friends of mine. Um, I had done a movie with Peter Spirer. Lo and behold, Peter had had a band I remembered from the 80s called Z Toys out of Miami. Their other, their big competition was the kids out of Jacksonville, okay. which was Johnny Depp's band. And Peter was the lead guitar player in that band. And Pete had never listened to country music at all. I said the birth of Sacred Cowboys came when my our wives became buddies. We took them to the Down from the Mountain show, the um, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou tour. And the first time he saw Bluegrass, he saw Kentucky Thunder play, Ricky Skaggs. Ricky's guitar player stepped up and he does this run up and down the neck of the guitar and Pete's jaw just dropped. And like he got obsessive about bluegrass music. And that's what kind of led to uh, my 40th birthday party. He goes, I got a buddy. It's a rock drummer, pretty good drummer. You know, a bass player we should play. Cause I'd rented the cat club. So we just did covers and like, Oh hell this works. And it just kept going. Um, then after we did Deadwood, uh, I met a, uh, another musician, Mike Johnstone was a pedal steel player, extraordinary pedal steel player. And he was working background on the show. And I invited him to come and take part because we we're going to be at the House of Blues. And that was how the band came to be. And you started touring then. I mean, you're also, you played at Stagecoach, right? Yeah, we played Stagecoach in 09. Now, what was we, that? we had for about three years, it was active because I was here in L.A. When I was doing Deadwood, I was here. And and we were still, we were playing clubs, but we opened for some, I mean, we opened for David Allen Coe at the Key Club. We would play the Knitting Factory. We were a regular at the Knitting Factory. Uh, we played in bakersfield we played at buck owens place we played in vegas at the railhead um so we played all around and we played in deadwood south dakota we were big and rich's opening act on wild bill days and then it was kind of the peak was the stagecoach festival but i was gone so much traveling that it's it's been semi mothballed since then what was it like playing in such a in front of a big crowd i mean because stagecoach has a huge crowd and it's, it's not like playing a bar it's playing in front we, of we had played at the Wild Bill Fest, which was a free concert, and Big and Rich were just breaking. Uh, the town estimate was 50,000 people. Um, if there were 50,000 there for Big and Rich, there were 25,000 listening to us. So we had played for a big crowd. So Bonner or Bonnaroo, uh, Stagecoach was not the very first big festival crowd, but it was exhilarating. We were on at three in the afternoon, and we started out uh, this uh, this high high lonesome yodel that I took out of uh, a Bill Monroe song, uh, Mule Skinner Blues is how I started singing it. I got a big voice and it was in shape at that point. And I remember seeing, cause we're in the, the uh, Palomino stage. There was like this big exodus of people, like people listening, this exodus of people coming over to listen to us. And that was a pretty big rush. It must be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was just performing in front of, you know, 400 people is awesome, but in front yeah. of that many, it's like, it just, and you yeah, must... I'd say in that tent, we, we had, 5,000 or so probably it's there. That energy just must oh, come yeah. up. I mean, it's amazing. So you're acting and you're acting, you're doing music, you know, you're, you're doing, getting a lot of work. You were on Cold Case, which, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I, I love that show. And a lot of my guests have been on Cold Case. Did you get killed? Uh, in Cold Case, no. Okay. Cause I, I oh. I've died. I counted them. I've 20, I think I'm at 27 now with this recent, recent one. Now, now, now what's your favorite death? If you could say, if you could pick your favorite death, was uh, it a hokey one? Was it a There's crazy? one coming up. Uh, am I allowed a full range of expression on this, or do I yeah, need yeah, to yeah. watch my... Oh, you can say, you can say whatever. <laughs> well, I, I just did the pilot for Preacher for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It's their favorite comic from when they were kids, when it first published, and they were 13. So they're making it as a series for AMC. We're waiting to hear if we're going to get picked up. But when I went in to meet the guys, I'd read the comics. It's six comics that tell one story. It's a broad, huge story. It's Kevin Smith tried to make it into a movie. A lot of people have attempted well, they said it's a it's a series. We we this should be we shouldn't cut any of this out. So they sold it, set it up. So anyway, I go to meet them, and and I said, you know, I've died whatever at that point it was twenty six six or five times, and I said I really thought I'd shuffled off this mortal coil in every possible way imaginable, until I read this comic, 
So if it happens, Sheriff Root dies in book one. Um, the preacher uh, accumulates this supernatural power. A, a centauri, an angel, has fallen from heaven and, and, and inhabits his body. So the negativity that people bounce toward the preacher bounces back on them. Sheriff Root at one point tells the preacher, you can go fuck yourself. And that's how Sheriff Root dies, with his own penis up his anus. <laughs> Of course, uh, just in sex. That's and, what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I told I told the guys, I said, you know, I've been doing Let me know what episode that's going to happen, because it's going to take a few months of yoga and Pilates to get me in shape. <laughs> that's so funny. So, okay, now Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Once again, a seer, like something about Marion Scream. Yeah. Deadwood, another show that, you know, just. Um, that's my pride and joy. But, well, it became so big. And as I said, I just started watching it. And I, I was going to watch it years ago. My buddy always says, my buddy Joff is like, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. And then I was reading an article that said uh, HBO's top series. I've always loved The Wire, mm-hmm. Sopranos, Boral Empire. And it said Deadwood was number one. It just mm-hmm. so happens before I have HBO go so I can watch it upstairs on my tablet. But then I went into the library and I saw the uh, it, Burbank Library. They had the first season. Yeah. So I put the first two and I have to catch up on it. But now. How did that come about? And did you know that would be critically acclaimed and one of those shows where, you know, Westerns weren't really in the norm then. I mean, yeah. sort of, and, and when you see, you know, David Milch, who's NYPD Blue, mm-hmm. you probably think, I mean, how did that audition come up? And did you know it would be just so groundbreaking? I had, I had done um, Six Feet Under, and it's the same production people at the network that oversaw that show, the same casting people. So they sent me Deadwood, and I read it, and they wanted me for Doherty. And I had committed to Steve Earle, the songwriter, in Nashville. He'd written a play. He's in New York now. He's been in New York for seven years. But Steve had written a play with a role for me, and I'd promised him I would do it. And I'm a huge Steve. He's my favorite. He's my favorite songwriter. Okay. Um, so anyway, I was committed to the play. They, they bring me Deadwood. I told my agent, I said, you know, Doherty only had, same as Warren in Something About Mary, on the page, very few lines. And it, he was the thug in the shadows. And I said, you know, I don't I don't want to get stuck. I love this script is really unique and weird and wonderful, but I don't want to be the thug in the shadows for seven years. I said, I, I want to read for Jack McCall. The guy, you know, that's only four episodes, and then he gets killed. I said, I don't care. That's a showy part. That's fun. I'll do that. So I go into casting, and, and the casting director comes out, and she goes, you're, you're reading Doherty. I said, yeah, but I, I want to do McCall. What? What? I said, I want to read McCall. I don't want to read Doherty. She goes, okay, well, let's let's read both. So we go in. I do McCall. She goes, all right, now let's do Doherty. So we do Doherty, and I see David perk up on the couch. I didn't know David, nor did he really know me. I had done NYPD Blue, but he didn't even remember that I'd been on the show. Um, so he says, all right, we're going to do this again, but I, I want you to think of, think about this. Every single word in the script he gave me a subtextual meaning for And that's when it sinks into me. This guy does not write the thug in the shadows. Every word is of importance. Every word has meaning. Um, So that intrigued me. Like, I need to be a part of this. So it worked out. I got offered it. I was in Nashville doing Steve's play. And um, there was was a conflict. Um, And we ended up, we had to cancel one performance of the play. Just one. And I flew back to Nashville. He picked me up at the airport, drove me directly to the Belcourt Theater. I got out of the car, changed clothes, and walked out on stage right at Curtin. So uh, it all worked out. And it's it was a dream job. It was We all knew we had something incredibly unique that had never really been seen before. It's poetry. It's in meter. Um, hence the Shakespearean comparisons. Um, it's violent, vulgar poetry. Yeah, it must. I mean, it's just, I've been watching. It's funny. I talked to someone that said the reason they use the current curses is because if you use the curses back then, it wouldn't make any sense. Is that well, true? We went through this with David. Um, the only word that I think we used out of context and we used it once is we used the word motherfucker. And that wasn't really of the parlance of the time. Um I asked David about the entomology. I think that's the correct word, entomology, the history of the word, uh, of, of the certain word. And he said that fornication upon consent of king, that's not true. And so he had traced the word down, um, and I since did a little research of my own and traced it, that there was a Norse word. When the Norse invaded northern England, the Norse, the Norse word was fokken, F-O-K-K-E-N, with okay. an amulet. And it meant to strike repeatedly with great force. So 
the Norris are coming in and they're fucking the English. Right. Well, the English fucked them right back and kick them out of their country. The English started using that word in the context. Uh, so when you're beating somebody, you're fucking them. Okay. The English somewhere, it started being spelled F-U-K-K-E-N. Um, and that's how, and then it picked up its sexual connotation for striking repeatedly with great right. force. <laughs> Not your tender lover. Um, so we had, uh, I think it was Robert Louis Stevenson's wife, read some excerpts of her diary. And she, she had sailed over in like the 1850s. She talked about the excessive uh, cursing of the sailors, excessive word of the of of the cunt k u n t and the fucking f u k k e n. So that word was used in context, being used as as a, you know a verb or adverb as much as we did. Who knows? As David said, we we have the written letter. That's all we have. Now the language of the show. This is David's word. He said anyone who was educated, lettered at all in that period was based in um, Victorian literature, which is a very flowery prose. So hence our style kind of comes from that. The first law that was passed in Deadwood, they split North Deadwood from South Deadwood. No cursing in public where the proper people lived. Okay. So as David said, if the first word, the first law that they put on the books is to outlaw cursing, those had to be some cursing cocksuckers. Right. So I said, well, uh, what about that word? He goes, which? I said, the cocksucker word. Well, again, you're giving me free reign of expression. As David, well, there were cocks, they were sucked. And I love the alliteration. Those plosives just jump out at you. Cocksucker, sucksucker. So uh, hence our two favorite words. Now, here's a question. How did you end up being on the writing staff? Um, I, did, I pulled a huge no-no in the pilot in that I improvised the line. It was minor, but it just came out of nowhere. And um, David, well, he came up to again. I didn't really know him. He walks up to me. It's the scene where Star and and Bullock have pulled in and they're trying to build their hardware tent. And it's uh, uh, five dollars a week payable to Mr. Swearingen at the gym. And Tim says to me, "Where's that?" And I'm supposed to say, "You'll find it." And in one take, I went, "You'll find it." Everybody does. So we finish the scene. David comes walking over to me. He goes, well, I guess I'm going to have to call WGA. I said, what? He goes, get an adjudication over who wrote this fucking script, me or you. The fuck did you say? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? I, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll find it. Everybody does. He calls the script supervisor over. He goes, write this down. Tell her what you said. He goes, ne never quote me on this because I'll fucking deny it. But that uh, that turn of phrase works. That 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 works. That... So that, I guess, was the seed that led to me getting the invitation toward the end of the first season. Ricky Jay was with us the first year and he was the actor slash writer. He was on the staff. Ricky was leaving. Which, well, I knew that he would be gone after the first season. And David came to me and he, just out of the blue. He goes, do you write? Well, uh, yeah, I, I do. He goes, I have something for you. Come to the trailer. So he gave me this transcribed 190, 200 pages of a lecture that he gave at Yale on his theory of writing. So I read it. And a few days later, he, did you read that thing? Yeah, you read it? I said, yes, I read it. All of it? I said, yes, I read all of it. He's all right, my turn. Let me see something you've written. So I gave him a short story that I had done. He read it overnight. Comes up and he says, uh, you ever written a script? Because this is this is decent. This short story is decent. You're, I said, yeah. I had just done the first adapt first version. I adapted the book Provinces of Night. It became the movie Bloodworth. We got it made uh, years later. But I had the first draft of that, which was an adaptation of a book, which I told him. He read it, and that was what, after he read that, he said, next season I want you to come to the trailer. So that was how the tour was open. And had it not been for Steve Earle prodding me, I was intimidated. <clears throat> One, I didn't want to overstep my bounds with my fellow cast members. I didn't want to feel like, oh, he thinks he's a... Um, and, and, I, I'm not, and I'm still not really comfortable writing for myself. And I didn't really... There was one thing I wrote that was Doherty, but I didn't really focus on Doherty. Um, and then I was intimidated by David's intellect. Like it's, I said, it, it, 
It's as obvious as the sword on a samurai, and you get the feeling it's equally dangerous. Right. <laughs> but after Steve prodded me and and said, you know, you're 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 passing up a great opportunity, man. That's a rider's rider. It's like when I met Towns Van Zant when I was 17 years old. I thought that man can teach me something. So that's what prodded me to take Dave up on it. So you you're on the show through the duration. Now, what was it like when it ended? Because <clears throat> I mean, it was I mean, massive fucking depression for 14 months. I mean, just because it was such a great time, is that what I it- was, it was my life, 24-7. If I was not, I mean, the band was kind of a side, that was my, get my yayas out, and, and it was exhilarating. So I had that going on. But outside of the band, my family, my life was focused around Deadwood. I was either shooting it, or I was trying to come up with ideas that, stories that we could tell within it. Um, so I'm constantly reading Old West stuff, and you know, taking notes and, and if I'm not literally writing something. Um, and I had no clue. I mean, looking back, there was writing on the wall. I just didn't recognize it. And Dave and Greg Feinberg kind of kept us in the dark about it. I mean, purposefully so. Um, when, when you know, when the ax fell. So when the ax fell, I the worst 12 years of my professional life, um, I had Bloodworth... Uh, Provinces of Night was in pre-production. It became Bloodworth. We changed the title. <clears throat> it was in pre-production to shoot in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I had Deadwood. And I was at a casting session out here for... The director had asked me to come and be the off-camera reader. So I left and I had this message from Milch. Yeah, Earl, call me at the house. I I, I, I need to talk to you. And I, I get out of the session. I turn my phone on. I'm like, hey, he doesn't like to be bothered when he's at home. Something's up. Shit, I bet you Doherty's going to get killed next because the real Doherty did get murdered. Okay. 10 years down the road, but he did get murdered. I thought, man, I bet Doherty's going to die next season. So I call him up. He says, hey, I, I hate making these phone calls. Or I, the show's canceled. I, what? <laughs> I'm driving. I had, a, I had an appointment to have a tattoo, and that's where I was headed. I had to pull over to the side of the street. This is in Santa Monica. Pull over. To the, I said, what? what did you say? The show's canceled. Uh, you know, they've offered us these two movies or six episodes to wrap up the story. That's not how we tell our fucking story. And, and I, I, you know, I, I can't truncate the whole ending. To, it's, it's, it's over. So I go to my tattoo. If you ever had a tattoo, they hurt. They hurt. You take your mind elsewhere, away from the pain. Like, oh, this beautiful piece of art that I'm going to have in my skin. For... That's what you he, think happy thoughts. No. When I was there, all I could think about was Deadwood. And I would focus on the pain of that needle. You know, <laughs> like fucking burn, sting, bleed, man. So, so you know, uh, I, I understand the mindset of people who live such a damaging life. <laughs> I understood for the three hours my tattoo. Anyway, the next morning... I had a call to our our, uh, line producer in North Carolina for, I had to get a check cut to Gibson Guitar because they were going to make these guitars for us. So I I had made the deal with Gibson, so I called a guy to get it. Ah, there's a moratorium on checks. What? You need need to talk to such and such. That's when I found out we had lost the money on the movie. So within a 12-hour span of time, I go from... I'm Dan Doherty, and I'm a writer on Deadwood, and I got my first big movie in production. And within 12 hours, they were both dead in the water. But so after that, though, you've kept your career going because we only have mm-hmm. a few more minutes left. I want to talk about True Detective real quick. Yep. Which uh, and you, I, you get <laughs> brutally killed. I mean, not no, that's one of those things we were watching it, and and your your character's sm- so much swarmy on that, like you don't give a crap. And now, uh-huh. and now, did you like playing that character? Well, that's a direct result of Deadwood. Nick Pizzolatto is a huge fan of Deadwood and David Milch. Um, you know, I think there are very few living writers that that Nick looks up to, and David's one of them. Um, so it was because of Deadwood that I ended up on the show. Um, and and I'm sorry, what was the question specifically? No, you just, do you like playing that kind of swarmy character? Because you really don't care in that show. You're just yeah. like a you're just like a cop who just yeah. sits there and doesn't give a shit. Yeah. He's crooked and he's just really waiting around to die. There were actually some funny scenes. That the there's an introductory scene of me and Colin Farrell in the parking lot where you first meet Teague Dixon. That got cut out of the show entirely. Um, that's that's where the whole flatulent thing that flat because the, the when you first meet me I'm farting. Right. 
And and that kind of set the tone of he just absolutely doesn't give a fuck. He wakes up drinking and taking drugs and he just wants to get through the fucking day and I don't care. And and I'm going to take and you know, I'm a bigger crook than the people I chase. Um and he had based it a little bit on uh, Orson Welles' character in M. Okay. Um, so I went back and I watched rewatched that, kind of that guy. Um, so yeah. Did you know when you were you were gonna get killed off? Did oh, they yeah. type? Yeah. And did you know it'd be so brutal? Because that's a, that's a, that's a they, brutal that's a brutal headshot. They were the most super secretive production I've ever been on. Okay. Like your non-disclosure agreement was I I, I joke that it was a dozen pages long. It was multiple pages. <laughs> And I said, I felt like black helicopters were following me. If anybody was asking me a question about true detective, <laughs> at the end of the day, you get many sides and, uh, you know, the, the, every day you have them. Well, these were emblazoned with our name shadowed in the background, which is now all scripts come with my name shadowed on them. So if they leak on the Internet, they can. Ch- well, these were the physical sides. You had to turn them in at the end of the day, like to leave. You had to turn them in. <laughs> And, and I, just just one other, it's a funny story. The, um, I, I turned 50. And, you know, when you get your physical after you're 50, you get a little extra special present that comes right. along with it. Well, I had that procedure scheduled. I'd already had to bump it once because I was working in Austin, Texas on American Crime. So I had it rescheduled. This is, uh, gosh, on Friday, I'm trying to get my schedule for the next week. Well, we can't turn that loose. We, that, we can't release that yet. I just Am I going to work Tuesday? I can't tell you. I got my agent on it and my manager. So Monday rolls around. I still don't know if I'm going to be working the next day. So I called the second AD on set. And I said, am I working tomorrow? Well, they haven't signed off. I said, look, I have a very highly unpleasant 12 hours ahead of me. And this little cocktail is sitting right here in front of me for to start drinking. If I don't have to drink this shit, I want to know it. And I don't want to come to work tomorrow shitting everywhere. So uh, that's how super secretive they were. <coughs> they said, okay, let, let me know. Okay, okay, yeah, you're off tomorrow. Well, you got off. That's good. You had to go through. Mm. I, I still have to get my physical. I'm 51. I still have to oh, do it. Lord. I didn't get it. I'm it's like, an enjoyable experience. I've heard it's so awful. I'm one of those people. Just the night up. before is awful. I heard you can't eat for like 12 hours. You can't No, eat. and you drink that god-awful stuff. See, I'm on heart medication, so I'll tell my doctor. I go, I can't, I can't drink that stuff. It won't mix, but okay. You have to. Yes, you'll see. You have to. Damn it. Anyway, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Now, uh, what else is coming up? Uh, well, American Crime is up for ten Emmys. Okay. Which I think may, uh, we had a decent audience, but it deserved a, a much bigger audience than it got. It's the best thing I've done since Deadwood that I've been a part of. It's an extraordinary show. Uh, Black Mass is coming out September eighteenth which I have seen uh, a chunk of it, and I think we've made a gangster classic. Um, I got a nice big role in that. It's the Johnny Depp movie where he's playing John Martirano. And then you don't know about Preacher yet, but we'll find out. So. We're waiting on Preacher, and in the interim, I'm doing a new show for ABC called Wicked City that's here in L.A. Well, perfect. You get to work in L.A. That's I get to sleep in my own bed for a while, yeah. Now, you're on Twitter. I am. And your Twitter name is? W. Earl Brown. That's where I found you. I, I tweeted you after I saw I saw you and my buddy's like Deadwood and I I looked your career and I tweeted you and it was great. So follow him on Twitter, people. Do you tweet a lot? I I, I go through periods. Uh, I, I I am tweet remiss in comparison to some of my friends. Well, you gotta tweet a little more because uh, you're working all the time. It's great. You gotta tell us what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So follow him, people. W. Earl Brown. And uh, yeah, is your music on iTunes? Uh, we actually do have a one song that was used in a film that's on that's on iTunes. Yes. And the band's name? Sacred Cowboys. So go see Sacred Cowboys. Find that song and uh and follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website CooperTalk.net. I have over 400 episodes and you can also find them on iTunes or Stitcher. Type in one word Cooper Talk and they're there. And if you have a Google uh, a Google Play Android app, you can go to uh, the Google Play Store. I have the Cooper Talk app. It's free. You can find all my episodes there. So just you can listen to them on your phone. It's perfect. So you can listen to me anytime. And please send me an email, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. As you remember, when I had my heart problem, I got out of the hospital, had to change my diet. So I wrote a cookbook, 120 recipes, easy to make, mostly cooking for one. There's no pictures, so you won't get intimidated. There's no long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, you don't need cumin. You can just cook. 120 recipes broken down into nice little uh, easy categories. And you got to do it because we're not getting any younger. You have to eat healthy. 
Buy it on StopTheSalt.com. You can buy it on Google. I mean, you can buy it on Amazon, but if you buy it from me, I'll sign it, I'll send it to you, and I make more money. So do that, please. StopTheSalt.com. Follow me at CooperTalk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. See you guys next week.